<clears throat> a beautiful mind was at work in the temple courts once again. Over two decades earlier, a young lad from the village of Nazareth in Galilee had journeyed with his parents to the city in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Passover. He was only 12 years of age, Jesus, at that time, but he joined into the discussions with the rabbis and he astonished them with his wisdom and his insight into the Holy Scriptures. Picture this young boy there. They'd never heard such things coming from anyone's mind, let alone a 12-year-old. They were stunned. We come now over two decades later, and we find Jesus once again in the temple courts at Passover season. And once again, we see a beautiful mind at work. The brain trust of Israel, the leading intellects and the power brokers of the nation have teamed up against Jesus and hit him with the hardest questions that they can devise. They are sure to trap him, but they don't. Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, as we've looked at this in weeks past, down through verse 26, gives us the account where he has tested concerning paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus, with his mind, with his reason, with his thought process, defeats his enemies in this attack and lays down a tremendous principle, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It cannot be attacked. Then at verse 27 of chapter 20 through verse 40, we find the section dealing with resurrection as these intellects try to trap Jesus, discrediting Him as a rabbi, saying something that He believes the resurrection from the dead cannot be proven. But with His reasoning from Scripture, Jesus defeats them as well. What is the end result? 2026. 2026, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Astonished when he was 12, astonished now in his mid-30s. Verse 40 of the same chapter, after another attack, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. But let's understand that Jesus is much more than just a smart guy. He is up to much more than merely making his enemies look bad. What follows now in the text of Luke are three loosely connected insights that Jesus shares with his listeners. If you were an eyewitness of Jesus during these days, these several days at the temple in Jerusalem, I think you would go away if you loved Christ and if you worshipped Him, you would go away saying, this man has a beautiful mind. His thoughts are deep and they're true. The wonder of His insights, the depth of His wisdom, truly all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus of Nazareth. It's an amazing wonder to watch as he speaks, and as he thinks, and as he perceives life. But let me stop here and say there is a grave danger for us at this point. Because I think sometimes the tendency is for us to dismiss the mind of Jesus because it's divine after all. I mean, would it really be any great joy to watch a world-class heavyweight boxer take on a third grader and pound him? You're really impressed with the boxer, but it's really not all that fun to watch. I mean, it's just not fair. 
We have a world-class chess player sitting across from a young kid and destroying him in five moves. Aren't we impressed? Don't we cheer? Well, there's something about that that's really not all that beautiful. And there's a tendency for us to put Jesus in that category. Well, he's got a divine mind. This is God talking to humans. What else are we to expect but someone who really cleans up on the intellectual scale? It should be a corrective here for us. We need to grasp this. We read it in that confessional earlier, if you noticed it. But Jesus was limited to humanity. We must remember as we go through this section that He was fully divine. But Jesus limited the exercise of His divine attributes to the natural limitations of humanity. What we are witnessing here in Luke chapter 20 is a man. A man who is not defeating his enemies, who is not gaining great insights into Scripture merely because he is divine, but rather because he has given his mind to God. Jesus, remember, has matured. The book of Hebrews demonstrates that. We see that, I think, also in Jesus uh, at, at age 12 and now in his mid-30s here. We see the maturing of his mind. Not because it was sinful, but I don't believe that the baby in the manger knew that he was the creator of heaven and earth. Not because he did not have the capacity to know, but because he was not exercising his divine powers at that place and time. He was fully human and limited by his humanity as we are limited by our humanity. And as Jesus thinks here then, it becomes a lot more interesting. Because it's not God beating up humans intellectually. It is the mind of a man who has given his thoughts over to God. And in this mind, we find three things come out here in this section. A string of three observations that Jesus gives to those who are listening, and they demonstrate the glory of his wisdom. May God enable us to see the glory of Jesus May He help us to worship, and may He motivate us to emulate. The first saying of Jesus reflects again the fruit of His meditation on God's Word. You've caught the idea of verses 20 through following, and down through verse 40, even if you've not been with us, that Jesus has answered His critics. He has stopped their attempts to trap Him, but now Jesus does the talking, and He turns again to Scripture. I'd like you to notice verse 41 of chapter 20 as He looks at Psalm 110 and verse 1. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the Son of David? Having sought to discredit Jesus on his belief on resurrection, Jesus had turned to Exodus 3. Now he goes to Psalm 110 and says, in, in essence, I have a question to ask you from, from Scripture. How can the Messiah be the son of David? Well, everyone hearing Jesus' words knows that Jesus is the son of David, or rather that Messiah is the son of David. In fact, they do know Jesus is as well. But thinking of Psalm 110, they all know, of course, Messiah is the son of David. Every Jewish boy and girl knew the promised Messiah of Israel would come through the descent of David. But how can this be, says Jesus? What do you mean, how can this be? Verse 42, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, now he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet, or for your feet. Now remember, Jesus is, at least in his hearing, here are teachers of the law. They are very familiar, let me say in a great understatement, with Psalm 110. But Jesus shares one of his insights, the fruit of his meditation on this psalm, and his insight rattles his hearers. They know Psalm 110. He quotes it to them and and then says, David calls him Lord, verse 44. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? There is a stunned silence, I'm sure. Biblical historians inform us that no one, there's no evidence in rabbinic literature that anyone had come up with this interpretation of Psalm 110 prior to Jesus. There's no evidence of it in the records of the rabbi's writings. They apparently had never thought of this point. In Psalm 110, David looks forward to one of his descendants who will be a great king and a priest. And all Israel look forward to the coming of this son, But as much as these teachers of the law knew about Messiah, they had never considered this point. How could David, in a patriarchal society where the father is always greater than the son, anything a son does always is owing to the greatness of the father. So you're in a patriarchal society. How can David, the great king of Israel, how can he worship the lordship of his descendant. It's unthinkable. But there it was, right in front of them, plain as day. Follow my words here. But have you ever, <clears throat> have you ever read a familiar passage of Scripture for the first time? You know what I mean, don't you? You've read it time after time after time, and all of a sudden it bites you on the nose. And you say, I've never seen that before. There it is. Where have I been? That, I think, is the experience multiplied probably a few times by these teachers of the law who prided themselves in knowing everything there was to know about the law. There it was right in front of them through the mouth of this unschooled rabbi from Galilee. David calls his descendant Lord. They sense, I think, in this moment that Jesus has cracked open a window into a profound mystery of God's truth. Matthew makes more explicit that they have no answer and they ask no questions. They who prided themselves in their understanding of Scripture are entirely stumped at a most embarrassing point, the identity of Messiah. How can he be Lord of David and David's son? It's very interesting here that Jesus doesn't answer the question. He just poses the question. He lets it hang there in the air for all to ponder, and nobody asks him to weigh in on the answer to the question. We know, of course, that the only way for this to be possible is for David's son to be both human and divine. There is no other answer. David has a son who is his descendant, physically human, a descendant, as Psalm 110 says, but yet it is very appropriate for David to refer to him as his Lord. 
He must be eternal God and the son of David, both. But Jesus doesn't help them out here. He doesn't let them in on the understanding of the passage because they don't really want to know. They know that Jesus is David's physical, of of David's physical descent, and he will prove his divinity beyond question on the coming Sunday morning. But in the meantime, they should have responded to the light that they had. Can you imagine what they missed? What they missed. They stood in the presence of a truly beautiful mind that could open their minds to the meaning of Scripture as no one else on earth. But rather than asking Jesus to teach them, they refused to leave the darkness of their intellectual cave. They closed their eyes, they stopped their ears, and they hummed loudly. We've witnessed in Luke 20 the wisdom of Jesus as Luke displays Christ's ability to probe the meaning of Scripture. And for those of us who love Scripture and for those of us who love Jesus Christ, we are awed by what we see. This is an ability. This is an experience, an exercise that we long to understand and in which to participate. But Jesus' probing insights were not limited to meditations on Scripture. We're aware of that, right? Jesus was not a geeky bookworm who was incapable of seeing life around him. He could talk all day long about the meaning of Scripture and interact with it on a level that the intellects could only be amazed at, and then he had no capacity to really relate to normal life. That is not Jesus, and that is not the mind of Christ. The perception that Jesus had, the insights that he had to interpret Scripture, were the same level of insights that he had to discern people. In verse 45, he exposes the moral hypocrisy of the nation's religious leaders in a second statement. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, he's speaking to the disciples so that everyone can hear, and believe me, this didn't make a lot of people happy. He says, verse 46, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Watch out for those kinds of people. They're dangerous. And they're in danger, for such men, he says, will be punished most severely. This is a scathing rebuke. Remember, this is the, he's speaking of the spiritual leadership of Israel. The teachers of the law were the power brokers of the culture. They were among the most revered in Israel. But Jesus saw through their moral hypocrisy and he exposed it. They were not, as they wanted everyone to think, faithful representatives of God. They served their own interests. They were proud, and they were morally inept. And as verse 46 indicates, the problem is what? Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. That word like is a key word, and it could be translated loved or love. They love to walk around 
in flowing robes. They love that their long, flowing, elaborate robes mark them off as special people. You knew who they were by looking at their fancy dress. They love the elaborate protocol that dictated people greet them with special respect. They love sitting at the front of the synagogue facing the people so that everyone would esteem them as the great scribes and teachers of the law and Pharisees in town that day. They love reclining at the most important spot at the table next to the host where those who would stand around and watch could hear their wisdom and see how important they were in the culture. They love that. Although they claimed to represent God to the people, they were all tied up with self. And their selfishness knew no bounds. There is a chilling phrase in this when Jesus says, and they devour widows' houses. It's obviously metaphorical. They don't go around chewing on the side of a widow's house, do they? What are they doing? We don't know exactly what Jesus means, exactly how they did it. But it is enough to know that they used their position to gain financial wealth at the expense even of widows, the poorest and most defenseless in that culture. They served as legal representatives and as ministers of the Word of God. They were teachers of the law of God. And it put them in a position to take financial advantage of the most defenseless of society. And they did it. It was wickedness. Jesus saw it, and he rebuked it. And along with this wickedness, Jesus saw through as well their lengthy prayers. What's wrong with a lengthy prayer? Nothing. Jesus isn't talking about prayers in private. He's not talking about them using their time and seeking the face of God and praying where no one sees that I think Jesus would certainly commend if it was done with the right attitude. He's talking about lengthy prayers in public. Now this is tough for us in a secular culture. That's a good way to be you know, put in a padded wagon and taken away if you're standing in the middle of a street corner praying out loud somewhere in our setting. That's not highly respectable in our secular culture. But in that day, these were the icons. They were, as I've said so many times, they were the athletes, the entertainers, the uh, politicians, the lawyers. They were everything that means anything in our culture that was the teachers of the law. And part of gaining respect for them was to make sure that they were standing on a street corner at the time of prayer at midday, and they'd lift up their hands and they'd lift up their voice, and there in their fancy robes be praying to God and showing to everyone just how pious they were. They loved it. Their prayers were plenty long, but Jesus says they never got off the ground. They were offered to impress people, and that's exactly what they did. That's all they accomplished. They could stand on a street corner and pray at midday to adoring crowds and then go home for lunch and think about how they were going to rob a widow of her money. It was pure hypocrisy, and Jesus called it what it was. He could see it. By the way, the image of this wimpy Jesus who thinks everybody's okay, he doesn't exist except in somebody's mind. When Jesus saw evil, he said, that is evil. He was perceptive 
not just studying the scriptures and inter interacting with intellectuals. He saw life and he saw wickedness hidden and he pulled the mask off and exposed it. I think these same men would have boldly rebuked such behavior in others, would they not? We understand how this works, but they saw themselves as part of a privileged class that is clear from our understanding of these leaders in the text of Scripture. In his fictional series, Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's nephew, C.S. Lewis, puts the following exchange in the mouth of a slimy, would-be magician named Andrew. The elderly scoundrel is rebuked by his young nephew Diggory for failing to keep a promise to his now-deceased godmother. Well then, that was, that was jolly rotten of you, said Diggory. Listen to what Andrew says. These are great words. Well, in the pen of C.S. Lewis, they're great words. Listen to what he says. Rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure. And I'm very glad that you have been taught to do it. But of course you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No, Diggory. Men like me who possess hidden wisdom, are freed from common rules just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. It says it well, doesn't it? These leaders said, we have privileges by our position. And we suffer certain things because of our position, but it gives us certain privileges. And what we see that arises is that which was owed to their parents, they could write off and say, no, it's owed to the temple, although they continued to use it. And that which was rightfully a widow's, they could take because they had the power to do so. They had a different rule for themselves. And so it is with hypocrites. It's interesting to me that Jesus does not here attack their theology. Jesus could have attacked their theology, and on a number of occasions he does. But the two primary criticisms Jesus lodges against the religious elite are these. Number one, they loved money. And number two, they loved the praise of people. It was a lethal combination, a cancer that worked itself out in their daily living. And as the great physician of souls, Jesus saw the cancer and he exposed it. They were orthodox in their confession. Their problem was not with what they said they believed, it was with how they lived. Jesus knew that personal holiness is the truest test of doctrine. If your doctrine does not produce godly living and holy morality, it is either false doctrine or you don't really believe what you confess you believe. True doctrine is absolutely essential for holy living. You live what you truly believe. You live what you cherish as true and beautiful. 
But it is very possible to affirm right doctrine and fail to live it. Now there's a lot of personal counsel that needs to take place here that we can't do in this setting, of course. Because every last one of us doesn't live our doctrine, do we? Not as we should. But let me at least put forward this caution. If your confession of the true doctrine is not transforming your life to live ever more like Jesus, something's wrong. Now we make inching progress, there's no question about that. And as a church, we're quite at peace with progressive sanctification. There's no big fancy key to make a quantum leap in your spiritual life that the Bible gives to us. But, let's not use that as an excuse. Yes, it's inching progress. Yes, we fail to follow our doctrine. But let's take some time and really consider in our own hearts, is the true doctrine of God's Word transforming me into the likeness of Jesus Christ? Spirituality, spirituality without holiness is a misnomer. If our true doctrine, we go to the scriptures, we understand them for what they say, we believe them with all of our heart, if that true doctrine is not evidencing itself in different living, in holiness of life, then our doctrine is like an airplane that has reached that critical speed of losing flight. And all of a sudden it drops out of the sky like a rock. Our doctrine is hurtling us to the ground. It's become a death trap. True doctrine is meant to make us soar and to lead us forward into the likeness of Christ. But if it's not doing that, it becomes a liability. And Jesus calls it for what it is. This will not end well. This hypocrisy of life, loving self more than God, being willing to take advantage of those who do not have any recourse to pad your own wallet, this is not going to end well. To make long prayers as if you are spiritual, seeking simply to draw attention to you, that is not going to end well, Jesus says. Verse, the end of verse 47, such men will be punished most severely. It goes back to his earlier teaching where we find that there is an accounting for hypocrisy. We all, we all play the part of the hypocrite, but let us take it to heart what Jesus says. We will be held accountable for our lives, and our doctrine should be changing us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. One inch at a time, one step at a time, but it should be changing us. Now, there are some very insightful people who have points one and two underhand. They're very insightful with their doctrine and their understanding of Scripture. Great insight there. And they're pretty insightful when it comes to people who are living it hypocritically. They're able to see the hidden weaknesses and sins behind, but that's where it ends. 
And I think this third scene really brings to our attention the beauty of Jesus' mind. Not only was he able to look into Scripture, not only was he able to see the hidden evil, Jesus was also able to see the hidden good. And that's a rare combination. There are some who can see the good in everyone, some who can see the evil in everyone, some who can interpret Scripture with great capacity. But put those three together, Jesus shows us that he can also see the hidden good. Verse 1 of chapter 21, and by the way, the chapter should end at verse 4 of chapter 21. That's, that holds together there in the context. But as he looked up, he's talking about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Just a brief word of background. If you can picture from science class, the beaker. These, there were treasure chests that looked like a big, huge beaker. That is, they had that flat bottom, kind of fanned out bottom, and a narrow neck. And they would come, the uh, money being coinage at that time, and they would drop their coins into one of 13 receptacles that looked like a, maybe an upside-down trumpet or a trumpet sitting on its bell, kind of that shape. They'd come up to one of these, and on each of these um, receptacles was a uh, a word or a phrase that would say that would talk about the free will giving project. And so you could give, for instance, to support the wood that needed to be cut and provided for the burnt offerings or something like that. But each one had a different uh, free will gift. Uh, six of them were just simply free will uh, receptacles. But these are the receptacles that Jesus is watching as people come up to them and drop their coins in. Now, the wealthy are coming up and putting their coins into the free will giving. It's supporting the temple worship. And it's just something that is in their own goodness that they come and give these gifts. And Jesus is watching this. The wealthy are giving, and they should be. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's good and right for them to support the temple worship. Problem being, of course, as we know, is that many of them went through all kinds of exercises to make sure everybody saw how much they were giving make as big of a clang at the bottom of the receptacle as possible. But Jesus is watching this. And as he is watching, verse 2, he also saw a, a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. He knows she's a widow by her dress. And he watches as she walks up to this receptacle. There are just two thin copper coins. They are basically meaningless. They would be seen in that culture precisely how we would look at two pennies or perhaps two nickels. Basically meaningless. She walks up to the receptacle humbly and puts them over that long neck and drops those two coins in and moves on. Only God knows how much that hurts. And only she knows how much joy it gives her to know that she has honored God in this way. A free will offering from a poor woman. Two little coins, and on she moves. Now what amazes me here is this woman. But what I think should amaze us equally and even more is Jesus. If you understand the context of this passage, let's say it, what's obvious, Jesus has a few things on his mind right about now. The shadow of the cross falls over everything he says and does. He is only days away from becoming the Lamb of God, and he knows it. 
He has people that are gathered all around him, attacking him and hoping to kill him. And they're powerful people. And he has crowds of people and the energy that that saps out of a person. He's got an awful lot to think about. And here is Jesus in the press of the crowd in all of this commotion, seeing one widow do one little thing for God, and he notices. It's amazing. He sees her with perceptive eyes. He sees in this mundane act something that most eyes would never see, but something that God's eyes always see. And he responds in verse 3. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. What on earth does that mean, Jesus? Clearly she hasn't. From a mathematical standpoint, verse 4, he explains, All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The point is clear. The wealthy did not miss what they put in. They gave out of their excess. After giving, they still had more to live on than they needed. But this woman's gift hurt. From a mathematical point of view, the wealthy had obviously given more than she had given. But giving to God is worship. And as worship, it is God who evaluates the giver. That's what's going on. We tend to judge our giving in comparison with others. Or to judge our giving by what our gift means to the ministry to which we have given it. But God sees things differently. He judges the giver on the basis of the cost to the giver. I remember in high school, we, in our weight room, we had this chart up there with some of the big boys. I wasn't one of them, but uh, the big weightlifters there. They'd have a chart up there, and I, I remember this, that they would have the person's weight and then what the person could lift. And then there was a certain percentage that showed people who got into various categories of being able to lift a certain amount of weight. Now, that's right and fair, isn't it? I had a classmate there who was six foot three, 260 pounds. And everybody was quite awed by the fact that he could bench 400 pounds. I had another classmate there who was shorter than I was. He had more muscle than I do, but he was shorter than I was. That guy could lift over twice his weight. But it didn't really count for much. It wasn't anywhere near 400, but he could lift twice his weight. Now, it's right and appropriate, wasn't it, for the coach to say this smaller individual is just as strong as this bigger guy, as far as pertains to him. As you do the math, he's lifting more percentage of his weight than this bigger guy, although 400 is a lot more than the, whatever, 300 or so that this smaller guy lifted. We have examples of that in our world, and that's how Jesus looks at giving. He can do all of the equations. We don't have to worry about it because we're not judging how we give against other people. God is the standard. And by His standard, do you know that there may be some in our assembly who are children who are the best givers in this church? Widows who may be the best givers in this church by God's standard. And it really calls upon each of us to consider what does God see when I give? Does he see worship? Does he see that your giving costs? 
Do you live pretty much like everybody else who has your income, or is it clear that you don't live as well as they do because of what you give to the Lord's work? Jesus sees. No one else may. But Jesus perceives our attitude and he evaluates our sacrifice each time we give. What does Jesus see as you place your gifts in the offering plate? What does he see? And we can expand this much more widely than just the area of giving. I think for the vast majority, the acts of righteousness that we do are seen by no one. You know that, mothers as you're laboring every day for these small children or bigger children as well, but you're doing things that no one will ever see. No one will ever know your attitude. No one will ever know the things that you've done for your children. There's things that many of you do at work that nobody's ever going to understand in this assembly or anybody's going to ever care. There'd be no article written up about you. There are acts of goodness and righteousness and giving that we perform to help one another along, our neighbors, our friends, our churchmates, our relatives. There are things of righteousness that we do that nobody on earth ever sees. One side of it is, let's remember that God does. He sees and evaluates properly. But let's not let it end there. Let's take it one step further and say we ought to work at seeing it in others. Jesus Christ, in the press of this crowd, with all that weighs on his mind, sees this woman and commends her. He sees her sacrifice. He sees what she has done. He sees it from God's perspective. He doesn't write her off, dismiss her, ignore her. He sees what she has done, and he perceives that was good. And he commends her. As busy as he is, may that beauty characterize our minds to not miss the good that people do. Now, we can't always say something about it but may we be aware of others. Our problem in sin is that we are so self-oriented, self-centered, that all we see is the good that we are doing and wishing others saw it. Jesus saw the good in her, and with all that was going on in his life, he celebrated it. May we have such a mind. I think every disciple of Jesus who watched him in action would say without hesitation that Jesus had a truly beautiful mind. You would want to hear him teach. You would want to understand his insights into life. Practical insights, perceptive about evil, perceptive about good, kind, generous, gentle, insightful, willing to rebuke, willing to say the hard word, and always meditating upon Scripture and finding their treasures. That is the mind of Jesus Christ. He was a man of unprecedented wisdom who saw life from God's perspective. And as followers of Jesus Christ, can we not be motivated to see the evil in our world and perceive it properly? To see the good in our world and to exalt it? And to give our minds to God's word? that we would find there for the rest of our days treasures of his wisdom and knowledge. I want to be like Jesus Christ.
I hope that is our desire and our pursuit as a church, to think as he thought. And as chapter 20 and verse 47 indicates, it really matters. It really matters. May we not be those who are severely punished for the way that we think, but may we be those who are rewarded by Christ when we see him in eternity. Let's bow for prayer and ask that this would be for us God's answer to prayer. Our Father, we come before you with thanks of heart, rejoicing with who Jesus was on earth and who he is, and what wonder we find in his great powers of thought. Not merely his divine attributes, though we give praise for that, but as was the context today, a mind at work to see the world from God's perspective, a practical mind, a theological mind, a fair and accurate and good mind. Help us, Lord, to think like Jesus. May the mind of Christ our Savior be ours. Teach us, Lord, to have the mind of Jesus. For those who know him not as Savior, I pray that they'd realize this isn't about emulating Jesus. This is about coming to receive his forgiveness of sin. I plead, dear Father, that you would bring such a one to the light of faith today. And I pray for those of us who know him as Savior, that we might be just more than enamored by Christ's wisdom, that we would seek to emulate it. Help us to set aside self. Set aside the weakness of the teachers of the law toward the love of money and the praise of people. I pray, God, that we would set it aside and that we would strive to see life from your perspective. May Christ control our minds and our thoughts. May he be our pattern. I pray to this end, asking that you will sanctify us and work within us this change. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.